Welcome to Science Night, presented by the River Power Podcast Belt. Welcome back to another episode of the Science Night Podcast. Now, tonight, we're going to make a bit of a change from past episodes. There's no guest, it is just me. This is something that I'm going to do a little bit more going forward. But that is not to say that if you're involved with science and want to talk to me about it, that you will not be welcomed with open arms. This will always be a space for scientists to tell their story. So let me know. Send me a message. The link to our email is on the website, scinight.com. Tonight, I'm revisiting a topic that was mentioned during my conversation about who owns the past with Gypsy Price. That is episode 13 of this podcast. And if you haven't listened to it yet, pause this, go back and check it out. I will wait. Okay, you're back. It was great, wasn't it? This episode will be about the Rosetta Stone. Now, it's going to cover both the story that you know but it's also going to include some details going into its historical context that you may not know. Think of this as another part of a larger series exploring who owns the past, because this is a topic that seems to pop up all the time. We are not great on this subject. So without further stalling, please enjoy this episode on the Rosetta Stone. His Majesty, the King of the South and North, Ptolemy the Ever-Living, the Beloved of Ta, the God who maketh himself manifest, the Lord of Beauties, received the sovereignty from his Father, entered into the Sahas Chamber, wherein they want to assemble the Mahatoi, and behold, they declared thus. The Rosetta Stone is a large granite stele that was found in 1799 during Napoleon's invasion of Egypt. It was found near the town that is now called Rashid, which at the time was known as Rosetta. Obviously, that's how it got its name. It was commissioned by the priests in the cult of Ptolemy V, and it describes all the good things that Ptolemy is doing to make your life better. If you're living in Ptolemaic Egypt around 196 BCE and you have fit into the appropriate strata of society, it's kind of like a very early political advertisement. Are you sick of being press ganged into royal service? Do you feel like as a native Egyptian, you deserve a role in your country's administration? Well, We're not doing anything about that. But what about those outrageous taxes levied on our temple priests? 
Ptolemy V is bringing a brighter future to the Nile, one where temple priests are free to keep more of your grain and silver. Pay homage to your local statue of Ptolemy today for a better tomorrow. For temple priests that will be paying less in taxes. Paid for by priests of the royal cult of Ptolemy V. We'll talk more about how this was much less benign than your standard political yard sign, but maybe this is something that we should investigate for modern politics. All political signage must be carved out of a four-foot slab of granite. I'm sure you're thinking, I've heard about how important the Rosetta Stone is, but this sounds like propaganda. And you're right! It's not what the inscription says that makes the stone so useful, it's the fact that because the cult of Ptolemy wanted to reach as many people as possible, they inscribed what is known as the Memphis Decree in three languages, Ancient Greek, Demotic, and Hieroglyphics. They chose these writing systems for very specific reasons, which means that we need to talk a little bit about Ptolemaic Egypt. Ptolemaic Egypt begins with the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BCE. And you'll know from history class that Alexander the Great conquered a huge amount of land and almost immediately his empire started to fall apart. This led to infighting with his former commanders to determine who would control the Hellenic world. And when the dust settled, Ptolemy I Soter seized control of Egypt and established a dynasty that would last until Roman annexation in 30 BCE. And if you look at much of the material culture of the Ptolemaic era in Egypt, especially religious iconography, it would be very easy to think that its rulers were and always had been Egyptian. This is not the case. Ptolemy and his successors all the way to Cleopatra VII, also known as the Cleopatra you're thinking of, were Macedonian. In fact, at the time of Alexander's conquest, it had been years since a native Egyptian ruled Egypt. That was Nectanebo II, who died in 342 BCE making way for Egypt to be annexed as a satrap of the Persian Empire. When Ptolemy took control, he adopted the trappings of Egyptian royalty, taking the title of pharaoh and establishing the royal pharaonic cult. Scratch the surface a little bit, and you'll see his policies created a sharply divided Egypt, where Greeks and Macedonians controlled the government and army, and had no desire to incorporate native Egyptians. It is very likely that the only reason the Ptolemies adopted as much Egyptian iconography as they did was purely for propaganda. Alan Lloyd describes the attitude of Hellenized upper-class Egypt pretty clearly. Relations between the two strata were, on the whole, strained partly because of linguistic and cultural differences, which few showed any serious interest in resolving, 
but mainly because Greco-Macedonian attitudes to the Egyptians was that Egyptians were there to be exploited for the benefit of their foreign masters. Now, I'm not going to go and paint the Ptolemies as an evil group looking to further their machinations at the expense of their people. That is an Assassin's Creed game. However, you can see the need for a robust propaganda arm to legitimize their rule, especially within the upper class of native Egyptians, specifically the priest and merchant class. This brings us back to the Memphis Decree, which is found on the Rosetta Stone. This is a perfect encapsulation of these propaganda efforts by the Ptolemaic dynasty. You'll remember the decree was basically canonizing the cult of Ptolemy V. And you don't remember, because I didn't tell you, this came just after a major revolt in Upper Egypt where a native Egyptian, Horwenefer, took the title of Pharaoh. And you remember that they chose three distinct writing systems. Those were Ancient Greek, Hieroglyphics, and Demotic. They chose these specifically to represent Hellenic Egyptians, those were the Macedonians and Greeks, the priestly class, the upper class of the native-born Egyptians, and then everybody else. The rest were the native Egyptians. And Demotic is not often used for inscriptions if you were going to use a writing system that the native Egyptians would have been able to understand, you would have inscribed them in stone using hieroglyphics. Demotic was something that was used on papyrus or slate tablets or in clay inscriptions, but not necessarily on granite like this. Even the location of the stele's placement, which was in Upper Egypt, specifically in the Nile Delta, would have been in the area that was just recently in open revolt. It is clearly saying that the Ptolemies, with their Greek and Macedonian allies, are in control, and the upper classes of native Egyptians are backing that claim. And the fact that they went to the effort to add Demotic means they want everyone to know this. No more funny business. I think that part is missing from most stories about the Rosetta Stone, but it's really important to have as much context as possible when we're talking about artifacts as notable as the Rosetta Stone. So now you know a little bit more about why the stone was commissioned. Next, we're going to talk about why it is so notable in our modern society, but first... A quick commercial break. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Phil. And together, we host the History's B-Side podcast. You know, history is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. Every week, we break down history's biggest stories and the forgotten people who made them happen. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. 
or follow at History's B-Side on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. This is History's B-Side. As I said at the top of the episode, the stele containing the Memphis Decree establishing the cult of Ptolemy V was rediscovered in 1799. I also jokingly referred to it as a standing forgotten political sign. But that was definitely not the case. The fact that we have the Rosetta Stone at all and have benefited from the information contained, as with most things, is pure luck. Warren Dawson wrote of the finding by André-Joseph Boussard, a French soldier, in August 1799, while some additions were being made to the fortifications of St. Julian, he found the stone built into a wall which was being demolished. It does credit to Boussard's acumen that at once he perceived the unusual character of the inscriptions upon it and it might have easily gone unnoticed had he not immediately reported to his superior officer, General Manot. We were basically a well-placed cannonball away from potentially never knowing what we know about ancient Egypt. I will not go into further detail on Napoleon's ill-fated attempt at annexing Egypt. That is a different podcast entirely. We'll just state that it failed. It failed spectacularly. And General Minot, who was at that point leading the French forces in Egypt, surrendered to British forces in Alexandria on August 30th, 1801. As a stipulation of this surrender, all the artifacts that were, let's be honest, looted by the French were turned over to the British. The British, who never saw an antiquity that they didn't want to loot themselves, had the artifacts, including the Rosetta Stone, sent to England in the HMS Egyptian, because they don't know what irony is, and arrived at the British Museum in June of 1802, where it currently resides. Today, we know a lot about the history and culture of ancient Egypt, and we're learning more all the time, but that was not the case at the time of the rediscovery of the Rosetta Stone. Sure, they saw hieroglyphic inscription all over the ancient sites. The ancient Egyptians wrote on everything. They just had no idea what they said, and nobody did. The information about ancient Egypt at the time came from two sources, and by at the time I mean in the 1700s. They came from Judeo-Christian texts, which you can imagine are almost universally negative in their portrayal of the Egyptians, and they also came from Greco-Roman accounts. Now remember, the Greeks appropriated just enough Egyptian culture to exploit the people, and while we didn't mention the Romans who effectively ended the Ptolemaic dynasty with the death of Cleopatra VII, again, that Cleopatra, and the annexation of Egypt by Octavius, let's just say 
the Romans were not known for celebrating the local non-Roman culture in the areas they conquered. Charles River Editor writes of these accounts, they were far from the unbiased scholars that historians aim to be today, and that Herodotus's account was a strange blend of historical fact and fantasy. And I do love the addition of modern-day historians trying and aiming to be unbiased scholars. That's not always the case, but I digress. Because of the lack of sources, Europeans had a lot of misconceptions about ancient Egypt and its culture. Some of the greatest hits are that the pyramids of Giza are giant granaries that were used by Joseph, the son of Abraham. Also, that Mary washed the infant Jesus in a sacred fountain in Giza, and that is why the land is so fertile. Also, the sons of Abraham taught the Egyptians how to build the pyramids. I don't want to make it sound like Europeans were alone in their misunderstanding of ancient Egyptian culture. The locals couldn't read hieroglyphics either. Uh, people like Saladin would call the uh, pyramids at Giza monuments of misunderstanding. But now that we had the Rosetta Stone uh, rediscovered, and specifically because of the way it was inscribed, we had the opportunity to do a little bit more scholarship on ancient Egyptian culture. And this is where we rejoin the story that you've probably heard at some point. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but it is worth repeating. Because the Rosetta Stone contains the same text in three different writing systems, one of them being very well known to scholars at the time, it allowed the other two to be more fully understood. It's pretty difficult to pick one person to praise for their work on deciphering the Rosetta Stone because it totally diminishes the work done by legions of scholars. However, the contribution of two men warrant special attention. Thomas Young focused on the Demotic script initially. His breakthrough came when he realized that both the Demotic and hieroglyphs were a phonetic writing system, and this means that the inscriptions represent sounds. This is how we write English, or really any of the Western languages, using the Latin writing system. And that is in contrast to like a pictographic writing system, and that's that can be uh, described when you use, or in my case, overuse emojis. He came to this conclusion when he realized that two or three images were often being used to represent a single word. And when he discovered this pattern, he could look for this pattern again in writing systems. And I know if you've been listening to this podcast a lot, I give linguists a lot of crap. But this is what they do. They look at a language and they look for patterns. And when they find these patterns, they're able to look for other patterns within the language. It's very mathematical and it's very uh, strategic in the way that they approach understanding a language. Young also concluded that Demotic was a precursor to Coptic. 
This is the language that was used in Egypt up until it was replaced by the current Arabic language, but you can also hear it used in uh, Eastern liturgies uh, in Coptic Christian tradition. So it is still being used. And in linguistics, if you can make a connection to a living language, it becomes a lot easier to decipher the rest of the system. In fact, it is now generally accepted that Coptic is the final form of the ancient Egyptian language, at least final form for now. All language that is currently spoken is living. The other person of note in this effort is Jean-Francois Champollion. I am really sorry if I did a really bad job of pronouncing that French. I'm trying. He too realized that Coptic would be the key to understanding the language of ancient Egypt. But Young focused on the demotic text. Champollion went to work on the hieroglyphic text. And yes, the people of France and Britain did not get along well during this time. Young was British. Champollion was French. But there was some communication between the two. They were collaborating to a point it wasn't completely on an island. Champollion went on to dramatically expand the knowledge of hieroglyphs using the knowledge that he obtained from his work with the Rosetta Stone. He would go and decipher more hieroglyphs found on other artifacts. And this dramatically expanded our understanding of both that writing system and therefore the culture of ancient Egypt. Deciphering the Rosetta Stone and unlocking the mystery of hieroglyphs led to an explosion in Egyptian popularity throughout Europe and America. This fascination has never really gone away. The Sphinx of Giza and the pyramids it guards are as iconic and evocative now as anything on the planet. Mummies still populate our action movies, like the bad ones like the one with Tom Cruise or the incredible ones like the one with Brendan Fraser. I realize my love for Brendan Fraser's Mummy franchise is an odd take, but this is a hill I am fully prepared to die on. I can't help but laugh at the fact that a foreign power is simultaneously the reason that demotic and hieroglyphics went out of use and the reason we currently have an understanding of them. Greco-Roman influence pushed the language of ancient Egypt to the fringe. Colonial Britain and France brought it back. That doesn't mean I'm ready to throw a parade for colonialism. In fact, hot take, the Science Night podcast is and always will be anti-colonialism. The problem with the Rosetta Stone doesn't come from the role it played in increasing our understanding of ancient Egypt. That part is great. The problem is, it does not belong in England now, nor did it ever belong in England. I talked about this in the context of the Parthenon marbles, and again, if you did not check out my episode on Who Owns the Past, episode 13, go check it out now. But I want to state very clearly, so you know my opinion on this subject, just in case you did not pick up the context. The Rosetta Stone, the Parthenon marbles, really 
All the antiquities that were looted during the colonial era belong to the cultures from which they were taken. We are not innocent of this fact in the United States. There are a lot of Native American objects in our collections that belong with those people as well. The idea that artifacts belong with their home cultures is true if you are a trustee of the British Museum, if you are a trustee with the Museum of Natural History in New York, and if you own a chain of craft stores that I will never shop at. This concept that artifacts must be protected in Western facilities is wrong. It is damaging, and it's holding back the science of archaeology because it limits access and it robs the items of context by removing it from the culture where it was found. Keeping these objects locked away as a curiosity for Western audiences is no longer an act of protection, but an attempt to diminish the culture that currently control these regions. It needs to stop. I hope you enjoyed this solo episode. Like I said at the beginning, I plan on doing this style of episode much more often and sprinkle those interview episodes in to give you a break from my voice. Thank you to everyone at the River Power Podcast Network. Why not go over to the new home on the web, riverpower.xyz, to find information about all the shows on offer. You can find out more about this show at our website, scinight.com. Follow us on Twitter at ScienceNight1, and follow me at James underscore read three. I will be back in a few weeks with a new episode. And until then, have a great night.